This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we discuss the first half of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's 1990 novel, Good Omens. James so if one of us is a demon one of us is an angel and we're friends throughout all of time who's who in this uh in this partnership we have here that's a really good question (laughs) uh do you see yourself in in one of those characters more I see like I think we're both gonna feel the same way because like I don't see myself as angelic in any way you know what (laughs) I mean I'm not an angel so I guess that would default me to a demon I don't think I'm quite a demon but I'm definitely like leaning more towards that that way (laughs) So you're saying we're both demons? <laughs> I think we're a double demon situation here. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I, c- I could play the angel. I mean, I, I like uh, Aziraphale. Uh, it-, it definitely seems interesting because like from the trailers, I get a slightly different vibe from the Michael Sheen character uh, portrayal of this character than I, than I got from the book. Um, but, you know, I'll be curious to see how that plays out. Um, yeah, I mean, I like him enough. I, I could be Aziraphale. <laughs> if you like want to, that, if yeah. you want to be Crowley, <laughs> cool. I'll be Crowley. I mean, I think the vil- the the evil side is more interesting, right? We got the better music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a little jealous because Crowley is awesome, but yeah. uh, you know, I, I'll do what I have to do for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually haven't seen any of the trailers, and I'm really? I'm really like holding off from everything because I I think I may have seen like a you know like a Twitter ad or something for it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear any sound or anything. And I, you know, I just saw David Tennant at MegaCon where he talked a little bit, very, very briefly about Good Omens. Not anything oh, cool. spoilery, but I, and like going into this, I didn't know all that much about it. So I'm just like, and I'm really taken with it. I'm just going to start off by saying that I'm, yeah. I'm really loving this. Yeah, agreed. I, I, I got to ask you more about that uh, MegaCon thing, but first, uh, I actually think it would be interesting if anybody wants to weigh in which one of us they think is the devil and which one's the angel that would be interesting yeah. so if anybody wants to weigh in i'd be curious to hear that <laughs> if you could if that you would could be funny force yourself to pick it'd be funny um but yeah so you went and saw him talk at megacon in orlando what was that like it was cool man i mean i mean david Tennant. i he was the first doctor that i watched on doctor who mm-hmm. and really i think i fell in love with doctor who because of david Tennant. And so, like, I've always really liked his, like, sense of humor and, and kind of the stuff that he's done. And then, you know, I followed him through, like, Broadchurch and Jessica Jones. And, and yeah. like, I think he's a great actor. So I, I was just excited to see him in general, as mostly as, like, a Doctor Who fan. And then, like, you mm-hmm. know, knowing this project was coming up was another reason why I was like, oh, I got to see him. The guy is so funny, so well-spoken. Like, he would be so much fun to, like, have a beer with and hang out with or <laughs> talk about philosophical uh-huh. you know topics or something like that he just seems like he's he's got a little bit of everything in him said so that it whet your appetite for this for this novel hearing him talk about it it really bit. did just the series i mean the series specifically because i didn't still didn't know what to think of the novel and like just the tone right off the bat and and like the how funny it is it's like laugh out yeah. loud hilarious well we can't forget terry pratchett too because that's i think right. um a large part of the tone of this novel 
to me feels like I haven't read a lot of Pratchett, but from what I understand, seems like is a very Pratchett-esque t- kind of thing. Maybe if you read a ton of it, you can kind of tell the difference. Uh, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear. Um, hopefully we'll get a, co- a chance to cover some Pratchett at some point. I mean, this book, the, this book has made me, I'll, I want to read more Gaiman and, and Pratchett. Like I'm, I'm, I'm game for whatever. And I was, it is interesting to see a novel written by two authors, right? Yeah. So speaking of that, my introduction to this novel was uh, I saw that Neil Gaiman appeared on the Tim Ferriss show, which I haven't watched a lot of Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. I honestly don't even think I know who that is. Yeah, I think he does like a podcast. I don't know if he does other stuff. I really don't know much about him, but I saw Neil Gaiman was on his podcast and it was a uh, it's like a video podcast you can watch on YouTube. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, because I, I love Neil Gaiman as a person. Like, <laughs> he just seems awesome. And well, um, I just like like I think I said on our Coraline coverage, like if if not, if anything else, I love Neil Gaiman for like his Twitter game. Like I just everything yeah. he says on Twitter is amazing. And he's always got something insightful or interesting going on. So I, I listened to this interview with him, which like as a writer, I just find it really fascinating to hear people talk about their process. And he talks a lot about process in that in that interview. And it was great. And then all of a sudden, like halfway through, uh, Tim Ferriss asks him about good omens and terry pratchett and he gets he he talks about it for like 30 minutes and it's amazing and it's like heartbreaking but funny and just really interesting he talks about their relationship and all the stuff that went into it and i was like oh man this is so good james has to watch this and then i forced myself to not send it to you because i was like wait if i I send it to him then i can't talk to him about it like in the same way so this i'm going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that he says without you know quoting it word for word um, and then after this episode, I'm going to have you go watch it because it's, it's amazing. It's a really, really good interview. And I just cool. like Neil Gaiman. I just want him to be like my literary dad. I think <laughs> <laughs> I just want to like learn from him and, and just be like, teach me everything, you know, and, and he has like a, um, storytelling, uh, you ever hear the masterclass thing? There's like a yeah, storytelling yeah. masterclass thing that he's got out now that Very I honestly cool. like might sign up for because it seems like he has all the knowledge and I just want to hear everything he has to say. <laughs> I might do a masterclass here soon as well because um, I, I think I'm like 99% sure I remember this being a thing like a couple months ago, but um, Martin Scorsese did a masterclass as mm. well. So like yeah. I got to watch that. Yeah. Well, maybe we can split a membership and <laughs> see if they don't <laughs> shut us down. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> we probably shouldn't put it on the internet if we're going to do that. <laughs> whatever <laughs> masterclass we're gonna do two subscriptions <laughs> we're sorry so uh but yeah man we got to talk about this so so general thoughts about the novel um we're gonna start off no spoilers i just want to hear like i know you said you were into it but just more more of your general reaction to reading we've only read the first half um which right. was up through uh the end of friday and then like there's a page that says saturday and and we stopped at that so if you wanted to know like how far we got if you wanted to read up to that point that's where we're at just like some context, I was raised in a house that was religious and I read the Bible a lot. I went to church mm-hmm. and um, it's really tickling my funny bone. Like it's <laughs> it's I it's it's so funny The like some of the references and jokes that they're poking at are just like so I, I mean, just brilliant. And then I think the main thing I want to talk about, though, is is like the tone is this is my favorite tone of of like it's kind of like this like cynical funny but also mm-hmm. like well informed and like well researched information that's that's yeah. backing it up um have you read uh hitchhiker's guide i was about to bring that up i was literally about to bring that up yeah um that's one of my favorite books hitchhiker's okay. guide to the galaxy is one of my favorite books and so that's the as soon as i was you know a couple chapters in i was like this is just like hitchhiker's guide and i like yeah. I like got on my phone and i was like Hitchhi- i did make sure that neil gaiman didn't have a hand in hitchhiker's guide or like terry pratchett or <laughs> no. something douglas adams 
Yeah. Yep. So so yeah, I made sure if it if it isn't just like the more I mean I guess it's not quite as absurd as as Hitchhiker's Guide. It's not like it, it's, it's I mean it jumps it, all over the place. If you were more religious, you might you might think differently <laughs> because I think right. if you're like a really religious person, you read this book, it's going to be kind of troubling for you because how much they're taking a piss out of everything that yeah. is related to heaven and hell and the demons and the angels and it's all so good. I like to think that there's got to be some religious people out there that read this though and just think it's like the fu- so funny and like can like take it with a grain oh, of yeah. salt. If, uh, you could be religious and just have a sense of humor about the whole, da- right. the whole thing, you know? Exactly. You, hopefully there are people like that that, that absolutely love this. Um, yeah. And, and like yeah. you said, like I'm not very religious. I'm not religious anymore. And uh, if anything, I'm agnostic. So yeah. it's just like it's but just like having that background. That's another thing is the background of the story. The idea of taking like, you know, within our modern day mythology, like the mythology of the Bible that's been like every single person in the world has some sort of connection to it or knows it in some way or is, is familiar with the characters, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and using that as as a basis to tell a story is so and it's it's got you're already ingrained in the story a little bit because you're familiar with some of the characters you're familiar with the goings on you're familiar with the world you know heaven and hell and and i think that's amazing to to take something like that and and build your world around existing built-in material that people are going to bring to like baggage that people will bring to the story yeah i mean if we can kind of zoom out a little bit and think about fantasy as a genre uh, this is, I wonder where this really falls. Cause I, like I've said before on the podcast, I'm not a historian of genre. I don't know. I haven't read enough to really say for sure, but written in 1990 being so heavily in- influenced by Christianity and like recognizable characters in the pantheon of, you know, devils and demons. This is all stuff that there are like, you keep seeing this done. Like I couldn't not think of supernatural, right? Have you seen any of supernatural? I've seen a couple episodes here and there. Okay. I've never watched it though. I feel like they lean heavily on this kind of stuff, and 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 I feel like I've read other things like this, and and it's. I think I don't know how much of it to tie to this book. I wish I knew more, but being so early on, um, relatively, it feels to me like this is probably really influential, and a lot of books have come after. You know, whether they say like, "Hey, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it more serious," or "I'm going to do it, and I'm going to also be funny, but I'll do it kind of you know about something different, different different pantheon or something." Um, I just feel like this book has to have been hugely influential. Um, I know that it's also uh, really, uh, especially Terry Pratchett, um, is immensely popular in uh, the United Kingdom, whereas uh, Neil Gaiman, I think, is bigger in the U.S. of the two, perhaps. But Terry Pratchett's like one of the best-selling authors of all time in the U.K. Um, I think it was surpassed by J.K. Rowling. Um, but he was like in the number one spot until that happened. So like that shows you how immensely popular T- Terry Pratchett is over there. So for these two authors to come together and write this book is also just like a powerhouse combo, right? Like that's it, so cool to me. And I was really fascinated to hear him talk about the process of what it was like working with Terry Pratchett on this novel. Um, and he definitely talks about that some on the Tim, Fer- Tim Ferriss interview, which we'll put in our show notes. I definitely highly recommend you check it out if I didn't already sell it enough. It's a great interview. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff he says just so we can kind of pick it apart and think about it. But um, the best thing to do is to go watch it. I mean, I guess I'll give a little bit of my general thoughts before we get into that, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, to echo what you said, I, I think it was incredible. And it's definitely a satire. And um, it, the satire like permeates down to the line, which I think is great. Uh, so you gotta you get a lot of hilarious sentences and prose style and... And it breaks a lot of rules 
and it just has fun. And that's one of the things that really struck me is that like it's having fun in every paragraph. It's having fun in like the way the story is being framed. At the beginning, it says this is the um, what is it? The nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which is on the opening. And then it says that it's like footnotes by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett as if like they didn't write the book, but they just did the footnotes. And it's, it's just really funny. Right. And it's like all in this kind of meta way, they're playing with that. And and they're in the cast, like the cast, the dramatis persona that you get at the beginning, which is another funny, funny bit. Right. To have that. And they're even in there as the footnote writers. Um, mm-hmm. It's just it's so clever. And like I said, like everything about the book is crafted in such a way to reflect that tone and reflect that that um, that joy and hilarity. And I really hope that that comes across in the show and that they're able mm-hmm. to they're having to do it in a slightly different way, obviously, because it's not going to be a book. But I'm really hopeful that they can get some of that. And it looks like they honestly, it looks like they have from what I've seen. Um, and another thing that I want to d- delve into you when we do get to the actual show is uh, the fact that Neil Gaiman is like the showrunner and writer of the show, um, which I think is That's, pretty incredible yeah. as as one of the authors. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like hitting a certain voice, it's it's so important to have the creator right there with like alongside. You know, like Game of Thrones just ended, so so, so something that that comes to mind is like you know when George R. R. Martin was executive producing and was right there with them, uh, it seemed like the show was was more true to his voice at least. Yeah. Well, that's another whole giant can of worms we could get into, but I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to sidestep that and keep the focus on Good Omens. We're thinking about talking Game of Thrones in our bonus episode this this month for our patrons. Um, so maybe we'll save it for that. But yeah, I think before we get into even this this background stuff with the authors, uh, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we got a couple things going on. Um, right now we're doing a giveaway for this novel, uh, Good Omens. It's the tie-in edition we got from the publisher, uh, William Morrow. And we're, we're going to be giving out six copies, and, and it's going to be uh, to two to Twitter, two to Instagram, two to Facebook. Find us at Ink to Film on all three, and you can see the post um, for how to enter, and it has the instructions. And basically, it's like share this post, tag somebody, stuff like that. You can enter to win on all three places and, and, and increase your chances. We, we encourage you to do that. We want to give these books out to fans of Neil Gaiman and, and people who are curious about it, and um, we hope you, uh, you find that and engage with it. So just for like a little, maybe to even entice you to enter even even a little bit more, we've been covering books and their adaptations for like close to two years now. Yeah. And this is, we're halfway through this book and I'm going to make the bold claim that this is like, this is in my top three favorite books that we've read for the podcast. It's, really? it's way up there. Well, I would say, I would say books that I wasn't, that I hadn't already read. Okay. Um, you know what I mean? Like coming to something new, like new material. This is in my top three new wow. ex- book experiences. I guess I haven't really reflected on it yet. Cause I, yeah, cause I haven't finished it. So I'm going to be curious yeah. once I finish it, how I, how I feel about it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll see where I'm at. I'll yeah. throw an update out there once, once we finish it. Cause if it completely like, goes <laughs> off the rails or something, I'll, I'll let you know. But yeah. so far I'm just absolutely in love with it. Yeah. And we covered, uh, by the way, if you're a Neil Gaiman fan, we also covered Coraline, um, I don't know, 20, 30 episodes ago and really had a good time with that. So definitely check out those episodes if you're curious. Uh, the other bit of housekeeping is that we have recently launched our YouTube channel and we have currently we have our It by Stephen King coverage and our Blade Runner, uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, Philip K. Dick novel uh, coverage, which comprised our first 10 episodes of this thing. Um, it, was, it was pretty deep and we, we did both Blade Runner films. Anyway, that's all up on YouTube, um, and if you wanted to check it out, give us a subscribe. That would be awesome. We can help build the 
build the channel a little bit. We're going to have plans in the future to maybe do some extra content on there that is that is separate from the regular podcast feed. So you're going to want to be subscribed if you're curious about that. Oh, and uh, so if this is your first time listening, uh, our plan is to do the first half here, second half next week, and then we're going to do the first three episodes of the show, and then we'll do the last three episodes of the show. So it'll be four episodes uh, consecutive here coming up on Good Omens. Um, we hope you stick around for all of them. All right, so I'm interested. I want to hear how you possibly write a novel with two people. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's going to vary from person to person. Um, but from from what I understand from that from that thing and some other stuff I've read, essentially Neil Gaiman came up with the idea uh, independently of a mishap. This is not really a spoiler. This is kind of the premise, um, but a, a baby swap mishap with the Antichrist. And then he also came up with the idea of a group of demons um, comparing like their what deeds they've done recently to to appease their dark lord. And like two of them have done like really dark stuff. And then like the third one really hasn't done that much. And he's trying to kind of act that like he is and play it up. And he thought right. like those two scenes seemed like they could be related in the same book. And he had this idea, but this is around the time that he was working on, I believe, Neverwhere, maybe the graveyard book. I'm not really sure. Um, but he was working on some of his other major works, right? So he kind of set the, the set it aside. But he did actually, before that, he had like 5,000 words that he sent around to some of his friends. And one of his friends at the time was Terry Pratchett. And he sent it to him. And uh, Terry Pratchett ended up reaching out to him like nine months after he sent it to him and said, uh, this, this idea is really good. I know what happens next. Either sell me this idea and I'll, I'll write it or write this book with me and we'll split the profits 50-50. And so Neil Gaiman was super busy at the time with all this other stuff. At the time, Terry was older than him and he looked up to him as a writer. He wasn't as immensely popular as he would later become, but he was further mm -hmm. along in his career. Uh, this was when uh, Neil Gaiman was like 27, 28. Um, so still fairly young. And he, th he, took, he said that in the interview, he says it's like Michelangelo asking you to, to like come and paint a chapel with him. He was like so honored to be invited to do this thing with him. So he's like, I'm going to make it work. So he ended up writing three novels at the same time. And one of them was this. And, and they used to do it by like they'd write stuff on floppy disk and then send it to each other uh, by post. Then they'd call each other up and just talk over ideas, um, talk about like what would be funny, so on and so forth. Um, so that was Neil's kind of, uh, Neil Gaiman's like memory of it that he talks about on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, I also looked up some more stuff about it. This is what, uh, Terry Pratchett said. He said, initially I did most of the Adam and the them and Neil did most of the four horsemen and everything else kind of got done by whoever. By the end, large sections had been done by a composite creature called Terry and Neil, whoever was actually hitting the keys. By agreement, I am allowed to say that Agnes Nutter, her life and death, was completely and utterly mine, and Neil proudly claims responsibility for the maggots. Neil's had a major influence on the opening scenes, me on the ending. In the end, it was a book done by two guys who shared the money equally and did it for fun and wouldn't do it again for a big clock. So that's his his, his relating of, of what happened with this novel. And I know they've both said, like, by the end of it, they couldn't tell who had written what and who had done who had done what and so forth. It feels like to to what the story feels like it's leading to, and I don't because I haven't looked into it at all. It just sounds like to me like there's is there like some bad blood there? Like if they would did it oh, not no. end well for them? Oh no! Oh no! 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 Okay. Great friends. Great friends. Okay, good. Because I I thought you were leading me to like, I don't a know story where you got of, that like, from. No, tragedy. No, no, no. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say and then no no I mean it's tra it's so so uh, Terry Pratchett died um, a few years ago. 
and that's what that's what was tragic about it um and one of his one of his we could talk about it more on the show but one of his final wishes was he t- he called neil up and said like you got to get this thing made because you know i want to see it before i die but then he ended up dying as a series like as a series yeah but he wanted to see okay. it adapted because they had, they, okay. they said that when they originally sold the book it immediately got bought by hollywood back in the 90s and right. it just it's been one of those projects that's been like in development and had different people attached to it and it just never ended up happening. This is like a kind of similar. I feel like have you seen Dogma? Yes. It, that's kind of like got the, some of the same things going on, right? I wonder when that was. I don't know when that movie came out, but I'm assuming uh, it was definitely after. later than nine, the 1990. Um, yeah. I don't know though. I mean, it was pretty early on. That was a Kevin Smith movie or. Did he write that movie? I don't know. I'm pretty remember. sure, yeah. I'm pretty sure he yeah. directed, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It does have some similar kind of stuff going on. Very different in, in other ways. I mean, this is, you know, way more British. <laughs> um, yeah. That's another thing is like, how British is this? Do they keep, they keep addressing <laughs> the American audience too, which I find to be hilarious. Yeah. They keep saying like, for you Americans who don't understand what's going on over here. <laughs> yeah, and you wonder so, some of that might have honestly been added for like the American editions of, because they will make different editions for novels, uh, you know, and, and sometimes they'll do that. So, so like I was saying, like uh, Terry Pratchett's one of his last wishes to to Neil was that he he said, you know, you got to see this thing done so that it can actually see the light of day, the adaptation. And so Neil Gaiman kind of took that as like a, this is his last wish, and I'm going to take it into making this thing. And I want He said that the whole time he was making it, he wanted the whole t- in the back of his head, he was like, I have to please Terry because Terry was like way more picky about things and would say no to more things whereas i guess neil's a lot more agreeable and his tends to compromise on stuff in his words at least and he said that he always had like terry in the back of his mind and he was like trying to please him and stuff so he, he talks a lot about it and it's actually it's really powerful stuff it's good stuff wow yeah so you double faked me didn't you you said yeah. there wasn't you said there wasn't a tragedy and then you fucking dropped a bomb on me. <laughs> a different kind of tragedy not a falling out though just more yeah. like a you know terry pratchett died and and yeah, I mean, to hear Neil talk about him is, is really interesting stuff. So we are going to go through like a plot summary for the first half. So we're going to spoil some stuff for the first half here. So if you don't want to be spoiled, now's the time to check out. Otherwise, stick around. All right, so the summary I have is is divided up into three paragraphs for this first half that we've read. So I'm going to read each paragraph, and then we can kind of talk about everything that goes on. It's very broad strokes, so we can kind of dive into it as we as we want. But here we go. Good Omens is the story of an angel and a demon who are both trying to do their jobs that are part of the great plan. Although Aziraphale and Crowley are adversaries by nature and profession, their relationship develops into a friendship merely because of the time spent together over thousands of years. In this unlikely pairing, compromises are made between the two of them so that they can both appear to be accomplishing their mission without overcoming the other too much. When the birth of the Antichrist occurs... They agree to work together to try to see if their influences on the child have any effect. By the time they locate the correct child, it is almost too late as Armageddon is about to begin. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop. And let's talk about, first and foremost, Aziraphale and Crowley and their relationship and, and all that at the beginning. I found it to be like kind of, I don't know if you interpreted it this way, but I found it to be really timely because, I, I mean, I guess it's always timely. It's just these two <laughs> fundamentally opposing forces yeah. who have to who find that they have common ground somewhere and then come together and work together in order to meet that common ground or meet that come together to solve a a common goal or whatever and it just to me is just speaking to the fact that although there you can be from a totally different background from someone completely different ideology and still 
work together and be amicable in ways. These are demons and angels working together. So, and they play, it's played to, it's played for laughs a lot of the time. It's played for, you know, a zero fail, maybe not being as, as holy or as, as uh, good as he should be. And, and Crowley be, maybe being a little better than he should be as a demon. He's not mm. quite as cruel as you might expect. I, I just, man, I love the way they play this. Um, you have the angel on one side who is, he keeps talking about the ineffable, ineffableness of God and, you know, his infallibility and how infallibility and how that, um, everything that happens has to be part of the design. And then, and then that immediately opens the door for Crowley to say like, well, then we can go ahead and do this thing and that'll all be part of the design. So he immediately is sort of pointing out how thinking that way is, is pointless because anything you do, you can retroactively say, well, obviously this was part of his design. He's ineffable or whatever. Um, so it's funny how they play that. And then I love that both sides feel like all the other demons and angels who aren't there on the ground, like don't understand the real world and like um, the whole free will thing and how that affects um, life. And, and they're all like remote and sort of um, abstract view of life and and what should be and shouldn't be whereas like when you're actually on the ground and you see like people struggling and you and you see the short lives and people trying to make the best of it and and how like it really seems like both that's where the that's where Crowley and Aziraphale connect right is both of their love of the earth and and you know sushi restaurants and bookstores and actually like living lives and they both are in love with that and they both mm-hmm. think that heaven and hell are boring by comparison or hell's more interesting, he says, but like it's still suffering. Heaven is boring as shit. And it's still right. like they're both still not. Neither of them are as interesting as Earth is. And I just love I love that idea. The idea that a, a, an angel and a demon could be could be jealous or they can see something that even humans can't see. But to think of of our flaws you know creating amazing art like they talk about the music is better on the mm-hmm. on the dark side like on, yeah. on their side and yeah. and it makes sense because like tor- people who are tortured or people who are who are dealing with things t- tend to i mean you know not all, in all cases but it seems yeah. like there's a there's some correlation to be made there yeah, yeah it just it to me the, like the, like seeing the gray area there for me is, is really fun and and thinking of it thinking of he- heaven and hell is boring is is really funny to me as well yeah. Just it, because it's like it's not as interesting. It's the free will thing creates you know randomness, and that's that actually brings up a good point with the free will thing. How so? It seems like these two, this angel and this demon, in this case, have some some form of free will because they're able to make the decision. Unless this really was part of the plan. <laughs> that's all the ultimate along, question of right? free will: is is it an all an illusion or not? I mean, whether whether you're talking about um, deter- determinism as a philosophical standpoint saying that none of us truly have free will everything we're doing has been determined before we do it or if you're talking about from like a grander scheme like god controls all of it um mm-hmm. so either of those two ways actually that would point to having no free will um whereas if you argue that you do have free will then that kind of runs in counter with the idea of 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 an all-powerful god who controls everything because you can't control everything if you can't control our free will and i think they're kind of like without getting too serious about it they're poking fun at it and 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 showing some of the some of, showing some of the holes that they see and I, I like that uh yeah or potentially just to play devil's advocate haha uh in this case <laughs> uh just potentially pointing at the mystery maybe there is an answer maybe there's not maybe it's both maybe you know what i mean with i yeah. guess it's an oxymoron for it to be both because 
one counteracts the other but you know right. it's like it's un it's unanswerable so i guess it's kind of like what's the point anyway yeah, let's kind of think that but uh, i have a vague memory in my intro to philosophy course i took at college with them talking about there was like a middle theory that compromised both free will and determinism so there is some right. of that stuff i don't remember the details <laughs> but yeah. anyway um also i love the idea of these two adversaries who've been there since the beginning of time, which I also love how it was like, it happened like, what, what did they say? Like 10,000 million years ago or something like some, yeah. some nonsense number is what is mm -hmm. the answer for like how long ago, uh, you know, the universe was created, which was, was very good. So having these two characters develop an affinity for each other over time, uh, throughout all human history, it really makes sense, right? Like it's at a certain point, they're the only other thing in existence that can understand what the other has been through because they're the same age and or theoretically and they've seen the same stuff and they've lived through a lot of the same things so even though they're your adversary you kind of could develop this friendship and i totally buy that mm -hmm. um, and it, i don't know it's just perfect they're they're both answering to someone whether it's the same person or not right. clearly it's not they they both have a higher power to answer to so they're yeah. both kind of in the trenches together kind of like eventually they well and they're both like bending the rules to make the other one look good they're like yeah i'll say you did this if you say i did this and you know we could play it this way and there's like some yeah. selfish stuff there but it's also like patting each other's back and yeah i love it and and the idea that like at one point crowley is like oh man the i knew the apocalypse was eventually going to come but it's like i can't believe it's now and and it's just such a bother and well so yeah they set up these characters who love the earth and they love living and when when the apocalypse comes around it's like even though he's a demon he's like i don't want this whole thing to end i like this and and similarly you know uh zero file or zero file doesn't want it to end either let's get into it now so then you also get this really fun baby swap situation that with the with the uh chattering nuns of satan or whatever which is like the order of chattering nuns so so good so funny. i mean the idea of a of a satanic order of nuns like nuns that are specifically they've been like basically raised in satanic rituals and everything all along the way they're and they're like the all just supposed of... to not stop talking is like their thing right so. yeah it's so funny <laughs> and they all have names like sister loquacious and i can't remember the other ones they're all like something to do with like talking a lot right right um very good um so yeah we get this sort of i mean god i love the way it was written too because it was it was broken down in a really funny way but yeah we get this baby swap happen and it all comes down to a moment where there's a miscommunication by wink which i thought was really funny like <laughs> winking of like i'm when i winked i meant this thing but then they thought that when they saw the wink it meant this other thing and yeah breaking down the winks like this yeah. this is what this person interpreted the wink as but you know winks are kind of indistinguishable so this yeah. this is actually what they thought that was going on and it was just so funny to get that that kind of like you know macro view of it yeah so the, the what happens is the antichrist gets born and swapped and the antichrist is is uh is going to be raised now by the young family and then this other baby uh which is called warlock is is raised by the family that um aziraphale and and crowley initially think have the antichrist now it's interesting too because crowley actually scolds aziraphale over the which I think I say his name different every time I say it, so I apologize for that, but I, I just can't like decide in my own mind how to say it, so I just say it however I feel like it. That's how it comes out. <laughs> anyway, um, Crowley and Aziraphale, they're having this uh, discussion, and um, it's about like nature versus nurture, right? 
And and Crowley like scolds him. He's like, "How dare you think it has to do with anything other than nurture? Like, there's no inherent. Like, he's just a baby. Like, how can you? How dare you think that he could be evil?" And um, I think like convinces Aziraphale to believe that. But then we see that now, not evil. Like, that's not. He's not just a normal baby. He's also got like lots of powers. Um, right. So maybe while not being evil, there is like there is something different about the Antichrist as far as just like power level seems to be way higher. <laughs> yeah. The idea that they were setting up, a sp- so initially it was supposed to, he was supposed to go with the diplomatic family, family and it was supposed mm-hmm. to be this whole like perfect situation for them to go in and, and, and you know, bring this kid up and, and bre- like raise him to be the Antichrist that he's going to be. Um, but the entire time they're bringing up the wrong kid, <laughs> they're yeah. like training up this other guy, teaching him all kinds of things that the Antichrist would need to know. Meanwhile, this kid's just like figuring himself out on his own. Yeah. So speaking of that, let's, I'm going to read the second paragraph of, of plot synopsis here. From the beginning, it is clear that Aziraphale and Crowley are both instigators in their own way. Their instigations are having an enormous effect on the course of events in the world. After the birth of the Antichrist, Crowley convinces Aziraphale to, that they should do as they need to do in order to influence the child's upbringing. They appear in the child's life as the nanny and the gardener, as well as other characters that will place them near the child. Panic sets in, however, as they discover that they have been influencing the wrong child. Due to a baby switch gone awry, the Antichrist arrived at the hospital 11 years prior. They have been spending their time and energies on the wrong child. I'm not sure about that sentence, but yeah, we already talked about it. There was a baby swap mix-up. They they spend a bunch of time trying to educate this child in their own ways. They, so they spend all this time like kind of fucking with this child that is totally not the Antichrist <laughs> and, and this child named Warlock. And, uh, and and finally, they realize on the eleventh birthday uh, that it isn't that he isn't the Antichrist. Um, and I really like that because the Hellhound is supposed to show up, right? That's what right. that was the big thing. And and Crowley even like talks to Hell and says like, "Oh, is the Hellhound on his way?" And they're like, "Yeah, we already sent it." And he's like, "Oh, there he is. Oh, good boy. I see him now. Don't worry about it." <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> it's so good. There's a couple things here that I just want to rattle off. Every tape turns into Queen after a certain amount of time, and the tape it's, it's like like Beethoven and all these yeah. like classical uh, works are being turned into so, Queen. So which... the trailer has "Under Pressure" by Queen as the oh, song. Oh, nice, in it. dude! Yeah. Oh my god, fantastic song! I think yeah. David Bowie's in that one too. So oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. Little David Bowie right. shout out to you. So just yeah, and then so communicating with the superiors, they can like tune into his radio to like to talk to Crowley through it mm-hmm. and. He drives super fast and like he's like so ridiculous, but he's like their never... powers are fun, right? Like both yeah. of their powers are pretty fun. They can just kind of yeah. like change things in reality and do. And Crowley uses it to his advantage, and then and then Azir fails always. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's all and yeah. then Azir fails like trying to use it for good for the most part. Like he he's not only producing miracles at, at important moments that, that need mm-hmm. to be. There's a bunch of other like stories that that offshoot this like major storyline here too. That yeah. we we may end up missing a couple here and there, but. We get these other demons that are that show up, and they're kind of like saying, yeah. like, "This is what I did, and this is this is the kind of stuff that I, uh, you know, this is the evil that I've been up to, basically." And they're like, uh, "I love that Crowley like like berates them for for using like old school tactics, like 16th century uh, ways yeah. of torturing people and, and yeah. dealing with people as spend, a demon. Spend decades con- uh, getting one soul to turn." Right. He's like, that's such an old way of looking at things. Now you got to hit the masses. There's too many people yeah. now and you can't. So he's like, like Crowley's like spreading bad days to people and stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's like giving everybody days. bad days with, with like bad traffic or something. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. And then it just like, like permeates and goes and like gives everybody a bad. It's just, it's super, super smart, super funny. And 
but they of course are not impressed like they're like what did you do you caused a traffic jam uh, right yeah and he's just like if only they realized and it's it, it's such a it's so brilliant it's so smart and i think that was the initial that was the initial idea that scene i think was probably the, some of the early words that he wrote maybe a different version i don't know but um that sounds like the the initial nugget of idea we always like to try and find those initial idea starter things and i think that's an interesting one that and then the baby swap right and it is funny because it's like the omen, right? But the the omen, if the Antichrist went to like a different family and was raised to be a good child and, and all that stuff, I guess. Yeah, it is. It's just like the omen. And then, oh, Rosemary's Baby. It was the other one that it made me think mm. of. If you see, they're taking the, these ideas that are, you know, tend to be more like horror or or something that's like to be feared and yeah. then just making it ridiculous, putting them in situations that just, I don't know, lead to some of the funniest things I've read in a book. Yeah. So when they go looking for the Antichrist, um, some some really fun stuff starts to happen. First off, we meet uh, some side characters. So they they meet uh, Anathema, who is the descendant of Agnes Nutter, and she's a witch. And uh, she ends up dropping her book, which is the prophecies, in the car on accident when she gets a ride from Crowley and Aziraphale. Well, that's and not to mention they they wrecked into her. She was riding her bike and they like hit her with the car. Or she ran into them or something. I don't know. It was unclear. <laughs> yeah. And then they like then that that's what I was talking about with the miracles. Like Aziraphale like got the chance to use miracles, so he like he's like, don't worry, we'll give you a ride. And he's like, Crowley's like, no, we won't. There's no rack on the car. How are we gonna move the bike? And he's like, yes, there is. There's a rack there now. <laughs> yeah. And then when like when this, when they drop her off, like her bike has like gears now. He's like souped up her bike and made it way better. And so yeah, he overdid it. He like maybe I overdid it a touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Um, so we, so we meet, uh, Anathema who, who is, uh, a more important character going forward. Um, and, uh, we also briefly meet Newt Pulsifer, who is a child initially, um, seems to be precocious. And then later on, he's going to be looking into this other witch finder thing, uh, which we'll get to in the, in the next part here. But, uh, in this section, I think we could talk about the, um, they show up at this, at the hospital to find out what happened and they find that like all the nuns have left except for one who's no longer a nun now and she's running and it's just like a community center conference center thing and they're having some sort of team building paint gun fight like paintball gun fight um and when they go in like crowley turns all the guns into real guns and then all the people just keep shooting at each other <laughs> it's pretty they're silly, talking about like the ruthlessness of ruthlessness of business was being yeah. kind of put in there and like the idea that it's like killer be and, like the cops and... show up but then like they're shooting at the cops and stuff yeah <laughs> but he it's... does make it so that he's like he makes it so that nobody will die i think maybe just to sort of appease zero fail or something i don't know or maybe because he is actually a good demon i don't know i think zero fail gets shot and crowd and he's like oh my god i've been shot i can't believe this is going and then like he's like well do you bleed blue and he's like asking like like why that's like initially how they find out that yeah. it's a paintball fight well because it was and it was an interesting part where he's like oh man i'm gonna have to get another body and then hell's gonna ask all these questions and so it was interesting to think that like they can die and it, right it is at least a headache if they were to do it. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of dying, when they realized that they they had swapped the wrong kid and they, they'd been bringing up the wrong kid as the Antichrist, they were like, yeah, well, what if the other kid ended up dead? And they were like, well, if he ended up dead, then he would have ended up down in hell or whatever, and they would have, they, people would have been upset a long time ago. Right. All right, so you know what? I think I'm going to read this last section of, of plot synopsis here, and then we can just kind of talk about the rest. Sounds good. Meanwhile, young Adam and his friends are enjoying the summer as normal 11-year-olds. Adam is the Antichrist. Through an interesting turn of events, Adam meets his neighbor, Anathema, who is a self-proclaimed witch. When she passes magazines along to him, his nighttime reading creates real-life havoc. 
It is these strange events that catch the eye of Newt Pulsifer, a Witchfinder detective in the Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell's Witchfinder Army. As Newt <laughs> investigates the strange goings-on, he pays a visit to Tadfield, which seems to have its own unusual story, perfect weather all year round. Uh, not really true. Perfect weather is usual weather, or typical weather, which is supposed to be like it's unusual because it's usual. the weather never cooperates. Like it, it's too it's too normal, um, which was a good detail. Man, there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. So let's let's dive into it. I really liked how they described. Uh, what was her name? Uh, Pepper. Pepper. Yeah. Pepper. Her, whose actual name is like Moon Moonfield Pippin Moonfield Gla- Gla- Moonchild or something. What is Pip- it? Yeah, Pippin Galadriel Moonchild. Yes, which, there it's it got to be a Galadriel you. reference, right? That's got to be a... Lord of the Rings, man. We've yeah. another project we've covered. Yeah. So I, I really liked her character, though. They kind of talked about her introduction to the group of like, yeah, I think it's like three other boys, including Adam. And then yeah. uh, they, they like make fun of her name or something when she says her name and she's all innocent. And then she like beats the hell out of all of them. Mm-hmm. And they uh, from that day forward, they were the them. And I, I don't know. I like this idea that he's like yeah. he's like Adam's uh, Adam's the default leader. And they all kind of look up to him. And he's got this like charisma about him. Exactly. Yeah. Linked to his Very, being Antichrist. Exactly. <laughs> So yeah, he's very uh, charismatic and and like the idea that he has a following around him and they're seemingly willing to do whatever and yeah. and then that's the other thing is the dog, the hellhound we have to talk yeah. about. Oh yeah, got uh, the hellhound shows up. Our introduction to it is is with Crowley saying like where's the hellhound and they're like oh it's it's it should be there and he's like oh I see it. So when it actually did show up it was like an angry mean it was going to be a crazy hellhound. It was going to be like the scariest it's like the scariest dogs that even like wolves would be afraid of and he's like he's walking down the street and he's like no one's going to mess with him and he's all you know hellhoundish. Yeah, go ahead. And then he like I guess hears uh hears Adam talking about what he wants what was it specifically it was like kind of what he wanted from like a dog. what kind of what kind of dog he wants or something like yeah. that because they're, they're talking about him getting a dog and so being the hellhound of adam he like turned into the dog that he described which was like a little tiny dog that was like yeah. nice and cuddly and everything and and yeah. uh, and then i guess there, there's a funny line that it kind of says being a little dog comes with a certain attitude and like maybe a lot of that hostility and aggressiveness that he had turned into like exactly what you would expect out of a smaller dog cuddly yeah. smaller we found the ur- he had the ur- sudden urge to wag his tail and like stuff like that. Yeah, right. So he's turning into this other little dog, like this actual cute little hellhound. It's really funny. And his name's Dog, I guess. Right, like the dog named Dog. Right. Okay. There's a moment later where he's trying to get him to come inside and he doesn't want to. And then he's like, oh, I have to teach you to be obedient or you're going to have to get rid of you. And he like forces him to actually do it. And then we find out it's because there's like a there's like a horseshoe above the door that's supposed to prevent like evil spirits from coming inside and it's like melted now or something because he had to like force his way in because he doesn't realize that he's actually like supremely obedient <laughs> right uh, it's just this one thing that he like was struggling to do yeah and that was uh, going into uh anathema's house he was meeting her for the first time which we should also talk about he talked to her about being a witch and i guess like he had the connotation of a witch being bad and she was like no this is adam the antichrist Correct. Yeah, Adam. So he was talking to Anathema about being a witch and she basically said like she wasn't a witch. She was an occult and then an occultist. And then uh, he's like, oh, okay, that's fine. Then (laughs) he's fine with that. Yeah, he's like, oh, that's all right. So uh, so then he joins her as long as you're not a witch. So then he goes to her house and that's when he like commands the dog to come inside. Uh, and yeah, she like starts to influence kind of she she realizes there's something uh, something interesting about him. And I think she describes him as a young adolescent greek god right the way that she perceives Mm -hmm. him she can kind of tell that he's very special and the world around him doesn't doesn't matter he's just like that that 
there's that much of a pull towards him. And uh, they, one of the things they talk about is like nuclear, uh, like nuclear power and stuff. And and they're talking about uh, you know, oh, it's not as cool as it should be. It like should be out and making noises when I went to visit it or whatever, but it wasn't. And anyway, and then so this them having this conversation, we then cut over and there's like a nearby nuclear power plant where the entire core has just gone missing. And it's like um, 400 tons or something insane yeah. like that. Like it's not something easy to move. So this is starting to show the power of Adam, right? Like he actually is immensely powerful and, and he doesn't know it. And I think um, he did that in his sleep because it said that he was like, right. when we flash back, it was like, yeah, and Adam's fast asleep. Yeah. So uh, meanwhile, uh, Aziraphale has come, has realized that he has the prophecies and he spends like a while just like reading, reading this book. And because he's he collects like uh, old, ancient, hard to find uh, books, especially like versions of the Bible that were misprinted, which is really hilarious. <laughs> Incredible detail. Or like have something funny in there. There was one where it was like the commandments were, were one instead of thou shall not. It was like thou shall. Do you remember which one it was, though? Commit adultery. I think commit, thou adultery. Shall commit adultery. Yeah, yeah it was like misprinted. <laughs> it's just like... And, yeah really funny stuff like it, it it's just like the idea that that an angel's collecting these books it makes you feel like those might exist though you know and like they would be a super rare thing if they did you know yeah maybe especially nice older ones in the bible yeah. like classic printings that would be i'm sure there's somebody out there who wants that and like he he keeps certain scrolls and like ancient things and like um, temperature controlled environments to to preserve them and he's like legit collecting these books and yeah. that's why it's so funny that he he gets agnes nutter's book from the chance encounter they have with anathema in the in the car and uh he brings it back and then he's just like toiling over it for days and he's like the the cocoa that he he sits down with turns tur- it like congeals, congeals and, and then turns solid, turns solid and, yeah. and and there's dust all over him so he's, yeah. he's studying for a very long time because this book i guess we haven't really talked that much about it but this book that we're supposedly reading yeah. and uh the book that he finds is like the only official perfect prophecy of all the events that would go down that that ever existed and it was yeah. published by agnes nutter but she never sold a single copy even the the initial copy like basically the only copy that exists is the one that she got for writing the book she got mm-hmm. like the original copy and yep. then one gratis that was, copy <laughs> that was the that was the one that carried through and that, that was passed down through generations and and you know anathema when she loses it is like devastated and she says she can hear like the her ancestors like laughing at her and and like can't believe that this is how it all happened yeah um there's another to back up a little bit more there's another great moment i'm just remembering now uh when crowley and azira fail get drunk together yeah and they're like talking about what's going to happen with the apocalypse and and crowley's like oh the leviathan is going to be a great big bugger and and they're all just talking about different shit that's going to go down and then um at one point, they're like, ah, oh, man, I can't have this debate while I'm drunk. Let's get sober. And then they say they both just like make themselves sober, which I thought was fun. Um, <laughs> it was good. Uh, we also yeah. haven't talked about the four horsemen at all um, who we've gotten. So I think two of them, we've just gotten like brief mentions of them. Um, but then uh, there are two, uh, Carmine, who I believe is war and um, Sable, who I believe is famine. Um, and it's not explicitly laid out, but I think it's pretty sure that's who they are. Well, and we specific for war specifically, it's Carmine, and they call her Scarlet as well. They call her and Scarlet, for that yeah, one, it's all like it's all like red stuff. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty certain that that's war. Like I think. Well, she, so she's a war. She's a war journalist, and um, right. she's like she works at like a like a rag, like a terrible magazine. But everybody who does war journalism knows that like wherever she goes she's going to be there right when the war breaks out. And so they all think she's this amazing journalist, but we know that she's actually causing the wars to break out. 
Right. And she's yeah. like, she constantly has people fighting over her and around her yeah. and that kind of stuff. And we get this scene in a bar, which are we going to talk about that now? Sure. Or we, yeah, yeah we, go for okay. it. Okay. So yeah, we get this scene in a bar where it's, I think that this is supposed to represent some sort of real life's going on with countries at war. And it's like this like bar fight basically. And they're pulling guns on each other and everything. But I think it's supposed to represent, you know, countries at war, or things that, things that are constantly going on. Anyway, she is in the middle of all this and they're all arguing about a piece of land basically which which brought to mind like the idea of like people palestine and israel fighting over although i think they're just fighting over like the bar right like this is a this is a like a strategically important spot according to them and they're they're arguing over it yeah so yeah they're so they're arguing about all this stuff and basically in the middle of all this a delivery guy shows up and he brings a package and she opens it and it's like this like kind of unremarkable sword but you can tell that it's like useful it's been used it's like ancient but it looks unused yeah at first it's described as like not being magical but then it's later described as being like a really deadly weapon so she's wielding that and everybody around them is like freaking out and i think they pull guns on her and then i think we cut away assuming no she... uh it's like something happens like something expl- like all the glass explodes or something and then right, like everybody that's dies what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 i knew everybody died i thought it was implied but yeah you're right it was the glass that killed everyone yeah so she's obviously serious uh means means business and she's being summoned for the apocalypse. That's what this signifies. Um, now let's let's also talk about Sable because I think that's you know that's the other the other one that we get a lot of. Um, he is like a di- he's like one of those like fad diet book writers, and also controls like Supplement. a company that that, that yeah. does like supplements or like this like alternative food stuff. And um, I love it because like this this woman comes to get him to sign his book, and he can tell she's like gonna die in like two years from starvation and she's super thin and he's happy about it so like this is a guy who loves seeing people starve and so his food that he makes has like no nutritional value at all and if you eat it only like you're gonna die um and he sells and there's like all these burger joints that make this like fake burger stuff that he that he did that you know is is super bad for you uh there's a there's a scene where he goes to one of these burger joints and orders food and then like gets annoyed because the the um cook is is happy and and he you know he doesn't like his attitude and he wants to get him fired now did you catch what they were trying to do with that cook like what the there was like a secret reveal there i didn't know whatever this is i i don't know what what okay. the, the reveal so, was here so earlier on and i forget at what part they're talking about um there's like four things that were were written or or like predictions that were made or something theories and there were like a lot of them were, like two of them were about Elvis Presley. Like one was like he's an alien or he got picked, he got abducted by aliens. Another one said he's alive and well in the Midwest. And then and then there was um yeah there's a couple other things. And he says one of these things is true. Well the the chef when he walks away is singing an Elvis song to himself and he's described as being a stocky fellow with like a pompadour style hair or something. Nice. I forget what it's called like a cowlicky hair or something. So I yeah. think it's it's like wink and a nod maybe that's Elvis. That's funny. No, I didn't even catch that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love that. that. Was, That's that the kind of stuff that like I guarantee you could just dig into this book repeatedly oh, and yeah. find new stuff every time. Well, and everybody's name like means something. And these are all names that are linked to like real, quote unquote, real demons and stuff and angels. And they all have their own like deep history. And I'm sure there's like little nods to that if you really know their history is really well. Um, I don't always, but... Right, yeah, and they're cool. quoting scripture and stuff here. I yeah. guarantee there's there's all kinds of uh, parallels to the Bible that they're drawing that is passing me by. I'm sure it's supposed to pass a lot of people by, unless you're like, you know, unless you study theology or something. 
I did want to say just the idea. I, I've always been fascinated by this idea of the four horsemen. And I think, you know, media in general has been, as you can see, there's, you know, movies, games, TV shows, everything with, with the four horsemen of the apocalypse in it. Yeah. But I like using them as, and I think they use that to their advantage because I think that you think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse as being deadly and scary. And then they place them as deadly and scary people in this comedy yeah. I mean, more comedic. It is, and I do want to say, as much as we're saying it's a comedy, there is a lot of drama to it, and I think that like it does end up having a lot of depth to it. It's not like this yeah. just like superficial co- comedy that's going on, um, right? I, I like what I like a lot of what's going on, but the idea of putting like these really terrifying entities within this more comedic story, I think, is really fun. Yeah, and um, I mentioned Supernatural earlier, and there is a whole series of things that happens. I think in like season four or five with the four horsemen of the apocalypse and to me that's some of my favorite parts of that show i'm not like a huge supernatural fan but i have watched a lot of it um it's one of those shows that i can just turn on and then like browse twitter and like i don't feel like i'm missing a lot if i check out every now and then check back in (laughs) um but regardless um there there was a whole series that was very good actually that had the four the four horsemen of the apocalypse in it and honestly very reminiscent of it's very reminiscent of this in my opinion. Um, nice. Now, we do actually get two mentions here that I have in my notes of the other two um, horsemen. So one is called Mr. White, and in his section, he causes an oil spill to take place, um, you know, wreaking havoc on the environment. And then another is briefly said who is who is unnamed, but who is everywhere. <laughs> and um, I get the implication that that is probably death, and the other one is like pestilence or disease or whatever, mm-hmm. is, is my understanding of it. Um, yeah. So I'll be cu- definitely curious to see these other two when they all get together and we see them. This is also all um, reminiscent to me a little bit of American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Like the idea of having these like godlike figures placed in modern society and still mm-hmm. having their powers and stuff. That's a, that's a lot of what American Gods is about. I It's so funny. I think I literally have American Gods and never... What's the what's Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. book? Neverwhere. Neverwhere. I think I have both of those books on my bookshelf and haven't read them i think i just somehow got them at one point and like yeah. honestly like and the other one that i think the one that i'm really really excited to read is the norse mythology book that he has mm-hmm. um because i think that came out fairly recently and like norse mythology someone actually one of our listeners recommended that we that we check it out as well and like yeah. i i really want to i really want to read the norse myth because i love that kind of stuff anyway and yeah. then i'm seeing how he handles it here and I just feel like this is I, I got to read more game and honestly yeah Pratchett at that because yeah I haven't I haven't read that one but I uh, that so that I agree also want to do more Pratchett um, but during that interview he talks a lot about the graveyard book um, which is another Neil Gaiman novel and after hearing him talk about that book that's the one that's now risen to the top of my list of ones that I want to read by him so nice. I wonder is if you'll feel the same way once you actually watch it is it adapted I don't think so, unfortunately. Okay, I'll look into it though. Maybe, maybe I'll see if there's any plans or anything. That would be cool. Um, yeah. But I just want, I just want to read it. It seems really good. Okay, so let's continue here. Uh, Newt. Uh, well, I want to call him Newt Scamander, but that's not his name. <laughs> um, Pulsifer. Pulsifer. Newt Pulsifer. Um, and him joining up with uh, Shadwell, and he's this like one man witchfinder army guy who has like a ad in the in the newspaper that that newt finds and shows up and um it's it's all really funny and really good shadwell to me i was like oh my god i love this book and we're this is fairly fairly deep into our 
half of this reading here for this week and Shadwell shows up and I've been loving the book. I'm like, God, I love this book so much. And then we meet Shadwell and I'm like, God, this guy is just like straight up offensive. I'm like, this guy sucks. I'm like (laughs) all this stuff. And then, and the best part is I'm like, I'm I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, is this just of the time? Is it like the nineties? Is it, is it, what is it like, what's going on here? And then they, they address it. They're like, yeah, he's, he's racist, but he hates everyone equally. Yeah. He's racist against everybody. He's just, he's just a misanthrope. He hates everyone and everything. Yeah. And that's the thing is like the like the awareness is I appreciated that because I was like, as long as they understand that this character sucks, like I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think he sucked. I, I don't know. I kinda liked him as old grouch. He, there, yeah, or, I, yeah, I, I guess know. he it's it's not that he sucked, it was just that he was saying things that I was just like, Ooh, I don't I don't love that. And then, yeah. And then uh, There's a weird situation too where like he lives next door to this this woman who I can't tell if she's supposed to be a fortune teller or a dominatrix or just like a prostitute or or what or like and she also has like all these gentleman callers and i don't know man maybe she's all of the above yeah i'm not really sure what what she is i i've i have a feeling she's going to be important for for more of the story obviously i think that there's something yeah. else going on but yeah it's I, definitely I, funny I, her her like ha- p- people are calling for her and like i guess at one point newt picks up the phone and tells the person on the other end like what underwear he's wearing and then like, he just gets hung <laughs> up on <laughs> or something that was the implication i can't tell what she is yeah yeah, but she's also doing like a seance at one point and all this right. stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. Funny, though. So now that we're on to Shadwell, um, there's actually a line here that I wrote down because it was striking to me in that it, every now and then when we're, we're doing these books, I come across something and I think there's no way this would have flown in like a workshop as a writer. This is a very like writer thing. Um, so if you'll forgive me. Um, but so I, I read this line and I thought this would get redlined like crazy. Like people would all be like, nope, can't say this. And and let me give you the line. You can tell me what you thought, what you thought of it. But um, here it is. A voice, the color of an old raincoat rumbled. I that's the line. Mm-hmm. So it's a voice, the color of an old raincoat rumbled, colon, mm-hmm. I. Okay, so there's like five things in that sentence that would make so many writing teachers and fellow writers I know like immediately just say like, oh, this has to be rephrased or change this or whatever. But there's also like something really wonderful about it that I kind of like. Um, so I don't know. I just had this moment of like like questioning, like what have I been taught? I don't know. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those difficult things, man, because people break rules sometimes and they do it well and they do it for a reason and it works. And to me, this is a rule-breaking thing on multiple levels. Um, can you pick out... I mean, you can probably pick out some of the reasons why, right? Well, yeah, clearly. I mean, it's it's not making any sense. Like, the, you can't... Right. A voice doesn't have a color. And, like, yeah. yeah, clearly, like, all that is the problem. But then but then grammatically, like, the, the colon I seems seems weird to me as yeah. well. Yeah, colons are, are almost always taken out whenever people see them. They don't like them. Um, and then, yeah, you know, and it's, it's, it's a voice that is... Uh, the, a color and that voice is rumbling and then a colon yeah it's just like there's a bunch of things in there that are just like we're told not to do that right but it's so funny because it's like you can kind of suss out what he means you know what i mean i think that's yeah. the best part oh no i think it's great and it was a line that like it stopped me in my tracks when i when i read it and i was like man that's incredible right and it's also incredible because it's like you're not supposed to do it mm-hmm. um 
because yeah, you're taking a sound and you're comparing it to a color and then, and then yeah, you're using a colon. And then also like, it's also like you're, you're comparing it to a color that you don't even then explain an old raincoat. Like, I guess that could be yellow, but it's not explicit. Dingy yellow. Right? Yeah. But then, but then he also turns it back into a sound, which is, yeah. Really Cause it's rumbling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now maybe I'm wrong and maybe, maybe a lot of people would say, Oh no, 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 that's actually good for this reason. And the reason I can see is that this, this book is fun, right? That we talked about like down mm-hmm. to the line, like it's having fun with you and it's playing jokes. And this is kind of jokey in a way, but it's also a very, like, in my opinion, very Neil Gaiman line. I don't know that he's the one who wrote this, but it feels very Neil Gaiman to me. And it's that sort of like almost synesthesia, like you're, you're taking two things that aren't alike in your comparison, you're comparing them. And there's a nice kind of like moment where you, you see what that means. And it's, and it's an interesting reveal, but I do think there's also a cautionary tale here for people who are in workshops. It's that you have to be careful not to stamp out creative ideas and original thinking and clever rule breaking um, whenever you see it. Because I think you can fall into a rut of like, here are the rules, I've learned them. And whenever I identify something that breaks the rules, I'm going to cross it out and recommend they change it. Um, And it's a shame because I think this would be a line, this would be a line that would be a shame to remove. So I know people say like rules are made to be broken and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, within reason, I think that that's that's really what it's there for. It's it's if you're if you're doing it every line, if you're constantly doing it, you're clearly doing something wrong. But if you're if you're calling attention to something by having it done wrong, I think that's a conscious decision. Like you're, you're clearly if you can if you can prove to yourself, you don't have to prove to anyone else. But if you can say like, this is the reason that I'm doing this. I, and, and it's not just you're doing it to break the rules yeah. and you can say like you have a reason and you can do it confidently. I think that that's that's the time to break the rules. And, and like you said, like, I, I think that that like stamping that kind of stuff out, it, that's that's where like the creative has to be like, you know what, I'm going to put my foot down and this is where I'm going to draw a line in the sand yeah. and say like this is this has to stay for me. And it's so hard because you, you, you can get in your head and start thinking that that's true all the time. Like, oh, they right. just don't understand my genius. You know, right. which is the other big cliche of like, you're not willing to edit yourself at all because it's no one understands your vision, you know, <laughs> right. and then that's like ridiculous. Right. So right. it's you have to find that that and that's one of the, that's why this thing isn't science. You know, writing is not a science. It's, you know, and, and there's no right answer. And even in workshops where you're trying to teach people, quote unquote, rules, they're all come with huge asterisks next to them of like, this is to follow this except for when you don't have to. And right. um I think this is a novel that, because of the novel it is, gets away with this thing. Um, right. What you don't want to do is see something like this in a in a story or in a in a book that like is completely not um, of this style, right? And it, right. it stands out, and it's clearly an issue, or it's done for the reason of someone didn't know any better. They didn't realize they were doing something that's kind of rule breaky here, and they just did it by accident. And that's never right. good either. Like you said, you wanted you wanted to be done with intention. Right. Whether it was Pratchett or or Gaiman, you can be damn sure that they knew what they were doing. Like they weren't oh, yeah. breaking it. They weren't ignorantly being like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely. I'm not trying to imply that at all. Hopefully it didn't go right. off that way. I think it's a brilliant line. And ultimately I loved it. It just it just really stopped me in my tracks and made me think about like, you have to be careful because I think there's a, he- there's a voice in my head that would self-censor and prevent me from writing a line like that sometimes. And I, I have to be careful about that because that can be the downside, I think, of learning, maybe learning too much about writing, honestly, and how it can af- maybe affect you negatively sometimes. Um, yeah. Anyway, so let's move on. I think that that's just my moment of like, I had this, this really, I had to like set down the book and just think about it for a while because I was so like kind of struck by it. Nice. But um, uh, I did want to mention, so going back to Adam and his friends, um, they're having this really 
interesting conversation about Atlantis, right? And and what Atlantis was like, and and what it would be like if it, if they could go there and like have, have underwater houses and all this stuff. And then the ruins in real life raise up, and uh, th- that just demonstrates the like raw power of the Antichrist, right? Like he's literally just talking about this with his friends and makes it come true. Um, pretty wild. The implication here is that not only so so seemingly atlantis didn't exist before this and he was like how cool would it be if that was an actual thing and then it like created the history and lore of it always having been there and then raising it it's like that's that's insane populated it with people who live there (laughs) right exactly (laughs) yeah it's wild man and then uh, the other thing is they then they start talking about hollow earth filled with like these tibetan monks that or whatever that like tunnel from place to place and and we haven't seen it yet, but I assume that this is all going to be true now, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the implication. That's, yeah. It's Tibetan monks burrowing holes. And it was like they were like bringing up, what was the, what was the, they were saying like, why wouldn't they just dig straight through the earth rather than like digging tunnels yeah. all the way across? So he's like, well, I guess that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Okay, man. I, I mean, I, this is basically where we stopped, right? Like we got, we got, everybody's descending on uh, Tadfield now, which is where Adam is, because they found out that the Antichrist isn't who they thought he was. He's here instead. So we get basically everybody heading there, including Newt, who has identified that this is a place of possible witchery. And so he's going to investigate that um, for the for the WA, which is the the Witchfinder Army, um, which is really funny because it's also being like funded um, by both uh, Aziraphale and uh, Crowley because they both think there's like a whole army of them, but it's actually just one guy who's been lying <laughs> and right. saying it's a whole army, <laughs> which I thought was good. I think they privately talked to each other and said like, "Yeah, well, I have I have some people that are like they'll they'll all con- get together," and I and then he's like, "Yeah, I have some people as well," and then they all, but they, but they, I don't think they know that they're both going to the same person. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, same, like same their one sources guy. are the yeah. same source, so it's just With, funny. It's it's, Sh- it's Shadwell, and then his one disciple he has now with newt um who he sends so yeah i mean all of our characters are converging so i, I think all that's left it for us to do maybe is, is speculate a little bit have some have a little bit of fun speculating on what what we think is going to happen what how do you think this thing's going to go down uh, i don't know i don't know if i can really it's so it's too absurd to really to really nail down <laughs> i don't think that i can really say tough. like exactly what's going to happen but i i think like clearly apocalyptic things are going to start to happen uh mm. and then it's just whether or not Adam realizes his power and if he wants to be good or bad, I well, guess. What are, right? what are you excited to see? I guess is maybe a better way to go about this one. What, well, what's what's something horsemen. coming that you're... Yeah, the four horsemen. Yeah, I agree, the four man. horsemen. Like, what are they going to do? What is that going to look like? Are there is there going to be battle? There has to be some sort of battles going on or something, like, like whether it's... Yeah. I don't they're know. They're not going to like Aziraphale and, and Crowley like interfering with it, right? They're, they're going to be fighting for the apocalypse, obviously. Right. That's what their job is. I have is. to assume, yeah. I have to assume they'll be fighting, but it would be funny to subvert it and have it be like they're able to talk their way out of it because they were able to yeah. talk their way out of everything so far. So if they could just talk yeah. their way out of the entire apocalypse, that would be that would pretty, be pretty wild. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm so into it. I, I'm I'm looking forward to, to the same. Definitely the Four Horsemen. Um, I think I hope at some point we're gonna get a Leviathan. Um, I think we probably will. Um, I want to see if, if if both Satan and God get in, get like involved more, and if we see some sort of like in person, you know, like a personification of either of them uh, right. or something else coming to Earth. Um, would well, be really oh, fascinating. A, you just brought up a great a great thing that we didn't talk about. They they were talking about God and the way that He works. 
and mm-hmm. and the way that he's like playing a chess game that no one but he knows the rules to i just thought that all of the stuff it was a really long section i can't remember all of it but all that stuff was yeah. just really funny and and like and like it makes you think you know like, like if they're you know what i mean if this <laughs> is the case this is what people yeah. are assuming that he's doing you know it's like it's like if if all of this was a plan then he's just like is this just some crazy experiment but he's keeping it within yeah. a certain i don't know it, it's know. all really interesting. Uh, to yeah, that, is it going to be revealed that this is, was all because the idea of introducing a prophecy that's accurate further lends the weight to determinism, right? Like the idea that this is all predetermined; it's going to happen this right. way. I think that this story will lean into not picking a side. Oh no, of course, you know yeah, I mean? it's not going to come but, down either way. But I would like to see it choose a side. I think that could be pretty interesting if it did. If it was like, yeah, this is you know, if it was like everything was predicted. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Could be kind of interesting. Uh, something else I'm really excited for is the fact that this is this is being adapted, and like I just, what does that even look like yeah. as a show? I'm I'm really excited to see like how balls to the wall they're gonna <laughs> it's go. It's funny. I didn't realize you hadn't seen a trailer, man. I, I haven't uh, seen anything. No, I really yeah. stayed away from it. You should definitely. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe don't check, check. Don't check it out. Just watch the show at this point. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to stop myself, but I might watch <laughs> the trailer. We'll see. It's yeah. not. It doesn't spoil too much, does it? It kind of shows a lot, honestly. It okay. shows some stuff that we haven't even got to yet in the book. Okay. Well, maybe I'll wait till I'm done with the book and then I'll yeah, watch it. Yeah, I kind of I wish I had, honestly. I was too curious that I couldn't hold back. All right, man. I think that's going to be a good spot to leave this until next week. Uh, I did have one other comparison I wanted to make. There was something about this book that reminded me of another project we covered, and I forgot to bring it up earlier. So I think I'm going to share that with you at the very end. Uh, how's that sound? Sounds cool. I'm trying to rack my brain right now and figure out what it was. Yeah, if, I feel like if I give you any more hints, you'll probably figure it out. But there was something in this book that reminded me directly of another project we covered. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but yeah, I mean, before we get to that, uh, we just want to thank you for listening. We hope you come back next week when we cover the second half of this novel and, and the, the show after that. Um, if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a review on uh, iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. That'd be super helpful for us. Best way to get the word out. And we also wanted to thank uh, patron Grant J. Uh, thank you so much for being a, a patron. He has been for a long time now. Help keep this show going. Um, if you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash film, and you can see all the bonus content that we do there. We do monthly episodes, and I think this month we're probably going to be talking about the, the latest season of Game of Thrones. So definitely check that out. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film, and definitely jump in on that on that book giveaway we're trying to do. If you want to like those posts and and share and and tag some people, that'd be great. Uh, join our Council of Inklings, where we post polls and and talk about adaptation news and other things going on in there. Yeah, and I just wanted to say that uh, giveaway is running till May thirty first. That'll be the final day to enter, and then we'll be giving it out. I will probably announce winners on June first. So look for that. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we also wanted to thank Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts and thank you to music lover for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. So if you're ready, I'm going to hit you with a comparison I had, um, going all the way back to the beginning for us, the, the, them reminded me a lot of the losers club from it. Interesting. You know, what's so funny about what you just did is that I was going to say it as a joke. I was about to be like, Oh yeah, I think I nailed it. It was it. And then I was going to make the joke. Uh, because I, I was trying to think of what that would be the furthest thing from this. So, yeah, I, but I do see the comparison. Yeah, totally way, way, way different. Yeah. But I see the comparison to the to the group of kids. It's t- I totally get that. Like kind of like stand yeah. by me, Goonies, like yep. Losers Club type thing. Yeah, it's, it's a, good, bunch of, a bunch of boys with one girl there. Um, 
they're the, when they're when they're having the meeting and they're out in the like junkyard essentially and they have their like little like secret hideout that all right. was very reminiscent of the losers club to me um so that was our very first project so just going all the way back i actually had a little bit of pang of nostalgia for that sometimes i randomly think about the fact that there's a scene in in the in stephen king's it where the kids like bury themselves in a pit and like get a bunch of smoke going and like all hallucinated oh, yeah. and almost die i just think about that scene sometimes it's a fucking crazy scene <laughs> there are a lot of crazy scenes in that if you want to hear our takes on them uh we we talk about them at length in our first five episodes uh that was a lot of fun I, I i cringe a little bit listening to some of those those old ones just because we were so raw and and new at this whole thing but um a lot of fun and we're going to be revisiting that later with it chapter two comes out later this year so uh stick around for that if you're curious but uh yeah i think uh i think that's it for now and uh until next time thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs>